Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We educate, we connect, we care. We're In Social Work. Hello, I'm your host, Charles Sims, and welcome to In Social Work. The 2010 U.S. Census found that almost 81% of Americans lived in urban areas. With so much of the country's population living in cities, and considering the long-established mission of social work to address the problems that can be found in urban communities, it is crucial for social workers to understand how the development of the city in the United States has played a role in creating and maintaining the social and economic segregation that is so deeply woven into the fabric of most cities today. Henry Lewis Taylor, Jr., Ph.D., is professor and founding director of the Department of Urban and Regional Planning Center for Urban Studies at the University at Buffalo. Dr. Taylor also coordinates the Neighborhood Planning and Community Development Specialization, as well as teaches courses in Central City Revitalization, Urban Management, and Race, Class, and Gender in the City. He was interviewed in December of 2016 by Caitlin Beck. Ms. Beck is an MSW student at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work and a member of the In Social Work podcast team. In this podcast, the first of two, Dr. Taylor argues that there is an intentionality to how we build cities that ultimately produce the highly underdeveloped communities that we see and where marginalized populations will find themselves forced to live. He reasons that cities have become commodities and the land a source of wealth. Who lives where is reflective of the value of that land with the disenfranchised and marginalized groups being moved to the least desirable sections of the cityscape. Dr. Taylor explains that neighborhoods are important in determining the life outcomes for their inhabitants, that there exists an interrelationship between people and the places where they live. He contends that institutions put into place to solve problems and bring about positive change in struggling communities are in fact failing in that mission and have shifted to simply easing the suffering and misery of that community's inhabitants. He ends this first episode explaining what we must face if we want cities and a society that is different. Hello, thank you to our listeners for stopping in. My name is Caitlin Beck. Today we are joined by Dr. Henry Lewis Taylor Jr. Dr. Taylor, as you know, we are so excited to have you on. Thank you again for joining us. Well, it's a tremendous pleasure, and I'm always glad to have an opportunity to talk with uh, my friends over in the world of social work. We are so glad to have you, too. Dr. Taylor, so your research concentrates on a historical and contemporary analysis of distressed urban neighborhoods, the social isolation they face and the related race and class issues among people of color. So based off of your research, why have you found that race and class segregation is interwoven into the very way that we build cities 
and metropolitan regions. My work is concerned with situating the development of underdeveloped neighborhoods and communities within the larger context of metropolitan regions and look specifically at trying to understand how is it the way that we build cities or why is it that the way we build cities produce certain kinds of challenges for our communities of color? One of the single most important things that I discovered in this research of trying to understand what we call the metropolitan city building process is the discovery that the very way that we build cities automatically produces highly underdeveloped areas of the metropolis where African Americans, people of color, including immigrants and refugees, and low-income whites are forced to live. And so that raises the larger question of why is it that the way we build these cities automatically creates these types of, of environments. The fundamental reason is that we turn the city into a giant commodity where the idea is to make as much money as we possibly can from the development of land. So in the design and the construction of Buffalo or any city in the United States for that matter, there are basic principles that urban planners and city builders always, always follow. Number one is that they attempt to separate or segregate homeowners from renters. Second, they seek to segregate higher income groups from lower income groups. And third, they force the lower income groups to live on the most undesirable residential lands in the city or the metropolitan region. And those undesirable lands are typically located near railroad tracks, near waste dumps, near major highways or thoroughfares, are places where there are high levels of noise, air, and water pollution, or they're located in the oldest, most dilapidated parts and sections of the city. Another kind of shortcut of thinking about things in those ways is that these neighborhoods are located in those locations and places where no one would want to live if they have a capacity to move to some other location and place. And so these are also the areas where the land is the cheapest from a residential point of view and, and the most inexpensive, hence the most undesirable. Now, what is considered desirable or undesirable is constantly changing. They're not fixed in time and place. So if a community, an underdeveloped community, is located in a part of the city that is highly undesirable. And if for some reason, whatever, doesn't really matter, that land now becomes desirable, then those low-income people who live there will be forced 
to relocate or move. And that's how the classical patterns of gentrification work. So the bottom line is that in order to generate and create profits, we build cities that segregate people on the basis of income, on the basis of race, and on the basis of the type of housing that they live in. And we see this in our own city in Buffalo, as I'm sure we see it in other cities as well. Exactly. I mean, if you take a look at, let's say, Erie County, think of Erie County as a big residential neighborhood, and you look at the suburban areas, that's where you're going to find the highest income housing, and that's where you're going to find the highest levels and highest rates of homeownership. And you're also going to find that in Erie County, close to 82% of all whites live outside of the city in the county and that would be in the suburban communities, while 78% of African Americans live within the context of the city itself. Now, within the city of Buffalo, this pattern continues with the best and most developed neighborhoods being on the west side. And the west side is interesting because on the west side, you have a classic pattern of higher income groups being segregated from lower income groups but a situation where uh, within these higher income groups they live in neighborhoods with both upscale rental properties as well as owner-occupied housing units with the worst housing and the worst living conditions on the east side and on the far west side where the old industrial lands used to be situated right Dr. Taylor, then what are the implications of building metropolitan regions in this manner? Well, it has a twofold impact. Uh, and that impact stems from the fact that, that neighborhoods matter. Neighborhoods are not just benign. Neighborhoods matter. And they matter because we have this very, very powerful interrelationship between place and people. So people not only act on place, but the places in which they live also act on them. So neighborhoods are a prime determinant of people's outcomes, life's outcomes. And so in instances where you have highly developed neighborhoods and communities where the living conditions are very good, where they are filled with very strong social institutions and social relationships among the groups of people who live there, where they have very, very strong institutions in place to mitigate whatever problems and challenges that they have. And these can be institutions that are both inside of the neighborhood and outside of the neighborhood, but have prime responsibility for serving the people inside of those neighborhoods. In those instances, we can anticipate that the life chances of people are going to be very, very good. And by that, I mean to say that many individuals will be able to achieve the goals that they set for themselves. They will be able to live a happy and healthy life. On the flip side, in neighborhoods that are underdeveloped, there is an overwhelming abundance of data that supports the idea and notion that in these kinds of communities, uh, neighborhood has have uh, very adverse effects on virtually every aspect of life. 
Uh, so, for example, in these communities, neighborhoods are going to, the neighborhood conditions are going to produce undesirable health outcomes. And what that means is that people in these communities are going to live shorter lives and that the quality of those lives are going to be much less than their counterparts in the more highly developed neighborhoods and communities. Neighborhoods will also impact uh, the educational outcomes of the kids so that we can expect that the quality of schools, the challenges that people face getting to schools, the inability for them to provide the experiences and the supports that they need back home, all of those things collectively are going to impact on their educational outcomes, and those outcomes are going to be undesirable. It also means that people are more likely to encounter obstacles and difficulties uh, that will drive them toward risky behavior. And, and I want to say that because a lot of times it's easy to blame risky behavior on the individuals themselves without looking at the social contexts that influence and contribute to those risky behavior. You take two people. One person lives out in Clarence. The other person lives down on Perry Street in one of the dilapidated houses around the, the uh, housing development in that community. Say they both work. One guy just simply works his regular eight-hour day. The other guy works two jobs and sometimes three jobs if you count the work that he does on uh, the weekends. One person comes home, the guy out in Clarence, walks in the door. He is stressed really stressed. He comes in, pushes a button, sweet music comes on, he looks around, really feels good about his house, his situation and his circumstances, quickly changes clothes, jumps into his Porsche, and then drives uh, about a half a mile away to LA Fitness, works out, and at the end of his workouts, he heads on back to the place, lays down and watches television on his 54-inch plasma TV screen. That's one reality. The other guy gets home. The house doesn't make him feel any better. In fact, it makes him feel worse about himself and his circumstances because he starts to look at all of the stuff that needs to be fixed, the shabby environment, the setting. I uh, just angry, and there's nothing about the abode that cools him off. So instead of going to the gym, which he couldn't afford, even if he had a car to get there, he just walks around to the local liquor store, buys him a half a pint of gin, goes over to a buddy's house, and they sit there drinking and smoking dope all night long. You can say that the other guy is involved in risky behavior that can lead to some very detrimental health outcomes. But the reality is that he has limited opportunities to relieve the stress, limited opportunities to get away from the, con the, the issues that he faces. So the larger point that I'm making is that within the context of these neighborhoods, folks are confronted with all kinds of obstacles and challenges that gets in the way of everything that they do. And the institutions that service them are failures. And the institutions are failures because they don't solve the challenges that they face.
and civilized societies, we build institutions to mediate and mitigate problems. That's why the institutions exist. So if the institutions don't do the jobs that they are supposed to do, then the people suffer. And so we turn the world upside down by saying if the people are suffering, it's their own fault and the institutions are set free. And then the institutions see it as their jobs and responsibilities, not eliminating and solving problems, but easing suffering and misery easing suffering and misery. And most of the institutions don't work the way they're supposed to. I mean, I've worked with Poland cars and the county of Erie trying to look at how we can make sense out of the social service institutions. And I've stepped back after almost a year of looking at all of these institutions and how they work and operate and run and said, so you have to redesign your entire delivery system starting with a public health system that has the responsibility of creating healthy neighborhoods and communities, and they don't even know that that's their job. <laughs> they don't even have a sense that that is their responsibility. I wanted to point out uh, just how in the School of Social Work, we would just say that you are so trauma-informed when you're talking about these populations of these people who are making riskier decisions, you're not asking the question, what's wrong with them? Or you're not saying they're doing these things because they are evil or because they are ignorant. You're saying, what's happening to them? What are the adverse experiences that cause them to make the decisions they're making? You take a lot of the kids, for example, and this goes back to the larger questions. We created that environment. The state created it. The state maintains it. And that's the important thing to understand. It's a deliberately created environment that people are trapped there. One of your professors, Callie Patterson, wrote, and someone else over there wrote, a very significant piece that talks about folks literally stuck in place. And the outcome of that is that the barriers of rent, the barriers of access to other locations and places are erected to keep them from going there. And so we create these settings. Now, once those settings are created, the trauma that they experience in there are parts of the characteristics of the community. And then we create those. For example, crime and violence that occurs inside of the neighborhoods and the communities. I would suspect that the number of kids living in these neighborhoods suffering from some version of post-traumatic syndrome is probably astronomically high. I mean, how could they not be when you put a human face on premature death, which is epidemic, if not pandemic, in these neighborhoods? Premature death. People dying before they're not supposed to. People seeing friends murdered and killed. Or as one girl came to school the day after she was grazed by a bullet. You know, there was no special help for her. I don't know, but if if I was grazed by a bullet that had been just one half an inch 
the other direction, I wouldn't be here. I would be troubled. I'd be traumatized. But we go out of our way to keep political consciousness from being forged in these communities. Because the reality is the state would rather have black people killing black people in that environment that in that environment producing black revolutionaries who are demanding change. Give them a choice. Thief and murderer are black revolutionary in neighborhood X. Ten out of ten times, ten out of ten times, they choose murderer and thief. Ten out of ten times. And, and so... And I'm saying that because during the 1970s and into the 80s, the United States government developed an organization called COINTELPRO, the Counterintelligence Program, and they deliberately suppressed the left movement in the African-American community. I mean, these were the same people that sent Martin Luther King a letter telling him if he didn't commit suicide, they would tell his wife about his infidelities. So, again, the larger issue that I am making is that these environments are consciously constructed and intentionally maintained, and that it will take an enormous effort and commitment on the parts of of people to change them, but they can be changed. And you've spoken to this already a little bit, but can you speak more to why? Why are we building these societies and sustaining them? For one reason and one reason only. It's about money. The city is a commodity. It's a commodity, a commodity where wealth is made through the buying and selling of land and its utilization. And by buying and selling of land, I'm not only including the soil itself, but the properties and structures that are built on it. We're talking about industries where millions or trillions of dollars are made from the buying and selling of homes, real estate. You're talking about decisions about where you're going to locate big apartment buildings and, and big hotels. Uh, that's land development. You're talking about the maximum amount of rents that you can charge for apartments that are located in prime places. You're talking about land that you want to convert into tourist attractions so that people will come to the city and spend money. You're talking about land that might get converted into a retail establishment. So in, once it's, it's developed into a retail establishment, multiple dollars are made. Dollars are made from the person who actually sells the land to the developer. Then uh, money is made from the bankers who finance the deal. Then money is made from the person who builds the building, the builder. Then money is made from the person who manages the property. Then money is made from all of the people who supply the building materials. Land is money. It's the sources of wealth. So because of that, 
You want to maximize the utilization of land in order to produce profits. So if you've got a bunch of low-income, poor black people living in the fruit belt, the developers know they can make more money off of that land if they convert it into high-income rentals. They can make more money off of that land if they can build more and bigger expensive houses. They can make more money off of that land if they use it for the construction of a research center or a hotel or even a, a parking lot. It's about putting profits over people. That's what it's about. And that's what the American dream is all about. Dreaming about profits and money. And profits and money will always trump, pun intended, people. And that's the ugly reality that we don't want to face, but that we must face if we want to create something that is fundamentally different. This is your host, Charles Sims, and you have been listening to part one of Dr. Henry Lewis Taylor's discussion on the economics of urban segregation. We hope that you will join us for part two as Dr. Taylor continues his conversation on this topic. So please join us right here at In Social Work. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, professor and dean of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our online and on-the-ground degree in continuing education programs, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. And while you're there, check out our Technology and Social Work Resource Center. You'll find it under the Community Resources menu.